Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. It's good to be with you on this Memorial Day weekend. And uh, kids, it's great to have you with us for the whole service. And for the rest of us, we need to be aware. Things might be a little more squirmy this morning, a little chatter, and we're okay with that. And we're able to worship together as a um, full church family. But um, so some of you know that before I came into ministry, I worked in finance and out of college, studied finance in college, went and got a job as a financial analyst, worked uh, in the city for about five years. And uh, the companies that I focused on as a financial analyst was on broadcasting stocks. And, and as I was kind of starting out my career, uh, simultaneously, I was just in a lay role leading uh, the young adult ministry here uh, at Grace Church. At that point, I had no thought I would ever go into ministry, nor wanted to. Um, and here we are. Um, but I found this parallel uh, between, um, it might sound strange, bear with me, a stock chart and the Christian life. And I felt like I was in these parallel worlds where I was watching kind of stocks, and if you were in our company, you put a buy rating on a stock or a neutral rating, and, and I would notice that even um, the best companies and stocks that we had at our company that we were covering, even, um, that even their growth was never smooth. It was never, if you look at any good stock, it's not just a, a straight line curve of growth. It's always jagged. It's always um, kind of even slower sometimes than they want to. It's two steps forward, one steps back. It's, it's a good month followed by a bad week. It's a good three days followed by a bad two days. And, and that even the best performing stocks had these really bad days. And the parallel with the Christian life is that I found, especially amongst young adults, like kind of 18 to 25, it's just kind of a jungle of a time in life in general, especially with their faith. And there was a lot of people who were struggling with that the growth was just slower than they wanted it to be. And, and there was this perception of when I become a Christian, especially you kind of become an independent Christian, you're on your own, 18, 19, 20, maybe you're new to faith, or maybe you're kind of recommitting yourself to the faith. There's this expectation, I'm just going to grow, and I'm never going to stop growing. And there was these kind of moments of kind of surprise, of like, why am I still struggling with all these things? Why, why, why am I still struggling in the flesh? Why am I still failing in some of these things? I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to just be growing all the time. And so I, I kind of saw this parallel and, and began to notice, even my own life, but also ministering to others, you know, growth in the Christian life, it's never smooth. It's always jagged, two steps forward one step back. And the key to a good stock and a good company behind that stock and a, and a strong Christian faith is not avoiding adversity because adversity is always going to come because that's not possible to avoid adversity, but it's always how you responded to that adversity and persevere into the growth. And I thought about that, reflected upon that as I was studying in our passage in Jonah as we moved to chapter 2. And we're going to go through this entire chapter today. But we, if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through Jonah. We, we're, we're about three weeks in. This is our fourth Sunday in the book of Jonah. And we have this rebellious prophet, and he's had a rough stretch. Jonah's had some, some bad days. He is struggling to, uh, to obey what he sees in God's word. He's, he's struggling to obey and, and hear that what God is saying is what's good and right because he can't see that it's good and right. And so he ran. And he ran and he rebelled and he's in this kind of dry season of his own sin. And, and, and he's kind of uh, somewhat miserable in it. But it, when we read it from our perspective, there's a strange encouragement when we read it. 
People struggle. It's not always easy to obey God's word. With all the struggles we face in the world that surround us, there is even more struggle within us, within our own flesh. And and we're going to see, it's been a rough three weeks for Jonah, but now in chapter 2, things are going to turn, and we're going to see Jonah persevere, and we're going to see Jonah grow in his faith and show us the secret to that growth. So I've entitled this sermon, uh, You Heard My Voice, and because that's a phrase we're going to see a little bit in the passage. I could have called it, What to Do When You Done Messed Up. <laughs> All right, maybe AJ can make that change when we post it online. What to do when you done messed up. Have you ever messed up? And right now, or if you feel like you're in a season that maybe other people know about, maybe they don't know that you just, you're really struggling with your faith, and maybe you're struggling with doubt and trying to understand and do I actually believe this? Or maybe you're struggling with your own sin. What to do when you done messed up? What's the secret? Jonah's going to tell us from the belly of a whale, as far-fetched as that seems. And so on that note, um, I want to spend a few minutes to talk about miracles. Uh, and talk about miracles in the Bible. If you um, have just started attending Grace, um, hopefully it would not take more than just a couple weeks to realize that here at Grace Church, we put a high and authoritative value upon the Word of God, uh, the, the Bible, and, and that hopefully that wouldn't surprise you even after one week of being here, that it is a, of central importance in every aspect of what we do when we gather week in and week out. You hear it hopefully in our singing, knowing that all the songs we sing are based upon Scripture. You hear it in our praying as Brian just came and shared with us a prayer that that scripture is influencing and shaping the way he prays. I hope you hear it in the preaching that I'm never going to come up here and not preach a passage from scripture. I hope you hear it in conversations you have with one another in two minutes at a time, five minutes at a time, before the service, after the service, that this is a church that loves the Bible. And a word that we use to describe that love um, is the word inerrant. It's the inerrant word of God, and meaning it's just without error. That we believe it does not contradict itself um, within the context of its genres and its literary constructs, that it is perfectly true. And so that's what it means kind of theologically, it's inerrant. Practically, what just that means for us is that the word of God always stands over us, and we never stand over the word of God. You know what I mean? Like, we don't kind of go with the word like it's this kind of buffet line. Maybe you're going to a barbecue today or tomorrow. You're going to have the barbecue buffet. You can take what you want. You can leave what you don't want. Nobody's going to judge you. But that's not the way we approach the Bible. Not the way we should. I'm going to take what I like. I like that. I like grace and love and mercy. I don't like that. I don't like hell and judgment and anger. And so I'm going to take a little bit of this. I'm going to leave a little bit of that. I got my plate. You got your plate. We're all good. It's great for a barbecue. It's terrible for a Bible. And yet, starting at the end of the 19th century, uh, this movement of kind of what was called higher criticism began to grow. And it didn't happen outside the church. It started to come from within the church. And if you're going to read in history, they're really kind of shaped now by the Enlightenment, uh, that there were uh, scholars and professors and pastors who began to kind of look around at the horizon and say, you know what? It's getting harder and harder to believe in our modern age that we can take some of these Bible stories literally. Like Adam and Eve as like historical people, Noah and that whole flood thing. 
the Red Sea parting. And then you got this story about a guy who went into a belly of a whale for three days underwater and lived. And it's just, they're starting to think that, okay, maybe the Bible was inspired by God, but not the actual inerrant word of God, meaning that there's many stories, especially in the Old Testament, that were kind of myths, and they were written as myths, never meant to be taken as true, but through their meaning, you can get a true meaning out of it. But that they're not meant to actually be taken as literally true. And it kind of, again, stemmed from just this cultural mindset that, guys, it's going to be tough for us in the church to survive in this enlightened modern age because the world is not going to respect us anymore if we actually think these things happened. Like, they're going to think we're crazy because technology is starting to get better, science is starting to get better, and we can't claim these things happened with a straight face anymore. And so the thought was, and in a sense, that came from a, from a genuine place. They're like, if we want to win people to Jesus, we want them to believe in Jesus, which they all wanted to do, let's let go of the historical nature of the miracles. Are they that big of a deal that we need to hold on to them? Because maybe if we let those go, we'll gain their respect, and then we'll begin to win them over. And they thought, again, they thought they were saving the church. And this became very popular in what has emerged in the last couple hundred years is a phrase called Christian liberalism. And I say that carefully because this does not mean liberal like Democrat, Republican, liberal, or conservative, but it means their liberal view of Scripture. And it began this wave within the church that began starting with the miracles, denying orthodox, traditional doctrines, and just kept giving ground, giving ground, and hoping that they will keep the church relevant. And look around, it's still very widespread today. Guys, we can't actually believe this and expect the culture to respect us. Let's just give these up, and then we'll stay relevant. So I I could talk about this all day, um, but just say it like this. History has not been kind to a liberal view of the Bible. All the major mainline denominations that have adopted it have seen steeper declines in membership over the past century than denominations that have maintained a conservative view of Scripture. And so I say all that to say this. All that began with the miracles. They were the first to go. To say, Jonah, it's not historically true. It's not actually a story that happened in history. It's a myth. And we can get some true things from it, but it didn't actually happen. And so... It gets you to this place of miracles. Why, do you believe in miracles? And if so, why? A miracle c- cannot be accepted, they'll say, because it cannot be physically proven. It defies science. And if it defies science, it cannot be true. And my response to that, not in a condescending way, just in a very simple way, is, is yes, it does. That's why it's a miracle. It cannot be explained, which leads you to having faith in a God who enacted it. Okay, Christians and the church is not anti-science. We are grateful for uh, science and the technology that have led to advancements in science. It's just that we believe God created science. And so science answers to God. And God's not answer to science. So when God wants to enact in history in a miraculous way, you know what? He can, and he does. And the entire Christian faith, if you think about it, hinges on miracles being true. You know why? 
because we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no greater miracle in the Bible, let alone all of history, than a man who died and was buried and dead for three days and then was raised back to life. It affirms he was the Son of God, who he claimed to be. It affirms that he paid the ransom of sin in full. It affirms that those who believe in him will join him in a full, eternal, bodily resurrection. And so if we decide to toss out miracles, we toss out the Christian faith. Even Paul said, man, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, let's all go home. It's Memorial Day weekend. It's going to be 90. What are we doing here? Our faith hinges on miracles being true. And so uh, as we get into this passage, I just want to say this. If I can believe a man was dead for three days and came back to life, I can believe a man survived in the belly of a whale for three days. It's just simply not an issue. All right, maybe that was unnecessary. That was the pre-sermon. promise we won't go long today. Jonah chapter 2, we're going to walk through it. It's only 10 verses. We're going to do a couple verses at a time and unpack what's going on here. Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. God has pursued Jonah with a relentless grace, and he has sent a storm, and he saved the sailors we saw last week, and he used the sailors to toss Jonah overboard, and then he appoints this great fish to swallow up Jonah, and in the belly, Jonah now prays to the Lord. Notably, the first time he talks to God in this story, he's talked about him, he's run from him, now for the first time he speaks to him. And this is a pretty clear breakdown of the prayer. It's 10 verses long. It's kind of a five-point prayer. And as I was preparing, it reminded me of elementary school days when we first had to learn how to write essays. Do you remember the infamous five-paragraph essay? Like, that was like, what do I have to do? Like, we've just been writing words and sentences. You want me to write an essay with five paragraphs in it? But it, they said it's very simple. It's very simple. You have your introduction with a thesis. You have your three points that support it, and then a conclusion, five-paragraph essay. That's how Jonah 2 breaks down. We're going back to school this morning. Verse 2 is your thesis. God hears. I called out to the Lord, and he answered me. And then you notice then he goes to personalizing it, showing that this is a prayer. He says, you heard my voice. This is the phrase in the book of Jonah that captures relentless grace. God heard Jonah. Despite his rebellion, despite his disobedience, he never stopped being God's child, and God always hears his children's cries. You ever notice if you've had children, like you could hear, like there's a lot of babies and kids in a room, but like if you hear your baby cry, you know it. You know, this door opens, and you hear the bedlam going on down the hall, and you're like, oh, that's mine. (laughs) 
a parent hears his children's cries, and, and the aha moment that sets a believer on the pathway of not just knowing Christ, but growing in Christ, is to know that the same God who is sovereign over all of nature, the same God who sends storms, the, the same God who's sovereign over casting of lots, who all of creation answers to, even this fish in the ocean to go swallow that guy that just fell in, that same God is also so near, he hears your cries. This is where worship happens, when his vastness meets nearness. God hears. And Jonah from here is going to go recount what just happened three different ways. He's, he's going to give glory to God for, for rescuing him, but he's going to repeat it three times. It's basically the same thing he's going to say, now three different ways. And that makes sense structurally because in Hebrew poetry, which really prayers are poems, right? It's defined by parallelism. I'm going to say this one thing. I'm going to say it again, but a different way. I think it also makes sense to us experientially because when we are really excited about something, like find that topic that you love to talk about, or that thing you love to see, we always find different ways to proclaim what just happened. If you have recently seen a musical on Broadway and you thought it was amazing, you can't stop talking about it afterwards, and you might be catching up with your friends after, and you'd be like, the singing was incredible. It blew me away. And then a minute later, like, oh, and the set designs and the costumes were so intricate. They were so detailed. And then a minute later, like, and the acting was so real. Like, you can't stop talking about it. You have to find different ways to say it was amazing. In the same way, if you were watching the NBA playoffs, which are like six months long, they're still going, maybe you've been tracking all the series, and, and you saw Kawhi Leonard's buzzer beater a few weeks ago. If you haven't YouTube it, just Memorial Day weekend, why not, okay? Um, the best buzzer beater I've ever seen. And, and if you see that live shot, what do we always do when we watch sports? I want to see the replay. I want to see it again, except from a different angle. And, and, then, and then you might go on Twitter, or maybe you're just a crazed fan like me. You go on Twitter, go, did somebody in the crowd tape that and then post it? Because I want to see their perspective. One play happens, it was amazing, I want to see different angles. That's basically what Jonah's doing here. He's finding three different ways to explain and proclaim one thing that happened. So let's see, point one, verses three and four. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall, look, I shall again look upon your holy temple. Point one of our five-paragraph essay, severe mercy. Severe mercy. Um, you notice what Jonah does here when he says, God, you cast me into the sea. Your waves passed over me. So you might be sitting there going, I'm paying attention. I was here last week. The sailors threw him in last week. Why is Jonah telling God, you cast me overboard? And as often as I can, I just want to highlight this tension that's all throughout the Bible. The answer to the question, okay, who threw Jonah over? Was it God or was it the sailors? The answer is yes. And I bring it up as often as I can. You kind of think, oh, here we go, sovereignty of God, we're going to do it again. I'm like, yes, we're going to do it again because it's all over the place. 
God is sovereign over all things, and he is in control over all things, and yet that never cancels out man's responsibility for their actions. And it's kind of mysterious and yet crystal clear all throughout the Bible, most notably at the cross. But Jonah ran from God, and yet God in his relentless grace inflicted this kind of severe mercy upon Jonah. Why? To draw him back to himself. So Jonah, while in the belly of the whale, is praising God for this severe mercy. Because you know what? That pain was really painful. And yet it's exactly what was needed to get him to turn things around. And if it wasn't for this mercy of God sending a storm, you know what? We talked about last week. Jonah would have just kept sailing. He would have gotten to Tarshish in his rebellion. And this is kind of just evidence for us that I think we all experience from time to time That it's often in the times of worst suffering where we finally see God most clearly. Doesn't mean we ask for it or we like enjoy it, but it's true. It's often in our failure where the goodness of God comes into focus. G.K. Chesterton put it like this. Mary put it on our Facebook page, quote, and I captured it because I love it. He was a theologian in, the, in England. He says this, quote, One sees great things from the valley, only small things from the peak. Jonah's not happy about this experience, about waves passing over him. I imagine that's a horrifying feeling, but he also concedes that this is exactly the experience he needed to look upon. And he says, God's holy temple. And so you might be asking, why does he say the temple? What's, it, what's so big deal about the temple? Well, we know Joash, Jonah, he's a Jewish prophet, and he's experienced, and he knows once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the temple and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice for the sins of Israel on a gold slab called the mercy seat. It's where God's mercy overcame the people's sins as God's mercy overpowers Jonah's sin here. When Solomon, who oversaw the building of the temple, he saw it complete, this vast temple, God came upon him in a dream and said this. It'll be on the screen, I think. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. If they humble themselves... Seek my face. He goes, this is what this temple is about. So Jonah humbles himself, cries out to God, and his eyes once again set upon God's mercy. Second point, let's read verses 5 and 6. It's going to say the same thing, but a little different. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Same thing, little different. I would describe this as timely grace. First we saw severe mercy, now timely grace. Grace, because let's be very clear about something about this prayer in the context of the rest of the story. Jonah did not tell the sailors, hey, toss me overboard in order to test God. He didn't get tossed over and go, guys, watch what God's going to do. Jonah went into the water expecting to die. And on some level, he made that decision on the boat. 
Because the storm came, he articulated to the sailors, who's my God? Why is it here? It's because of me. He still did not repent of that, of his sin of rebellion and running from him. He just said, guys, you're going to have to toss me overboard. Which means this. Think about this. Up until Jonah hit the water, he would have rather died than obey the Lord and see the people in Nineveh get saved. The hatred for that people in him ran so deep. But then something changed when that man hit the water. He became desperate. Which is why this prayer is all in the past tense, right? He's doing this from the belly of the whales. Now he's recounting what just happened. When he hit the water, something changed. He no longer wanted to die, and he began to cry out to God. You know, if you've ever seen children's stories or children's books or maybe the VeggieTales version of Jonah, uh, very common in our household, um, what you'll see is this big fish just under the surface of the water next to the boat, right? Jonah gets tossed in, goes right into the mouth of this fish. But reading this text closely this past week doesn't seem like that's how it went down. Jonah just said, the waters closed in on him. The deep surrounded him. Weeds were wrapped all around him. He went down to the ocean bottom, to the bar at the bottom, the literal bottom. And it is there where God's grace intervened in the form of a fish timely grace. How deep does God's grace go? How far down can you still find his mercy? Even at the bottom of the ocean, God's grace is there. It means you're never too far gone. It means you can never out-sin God. It means where sin runs deep, his grace is more. You know, I imagine at some point while he was struggling under the waves, it came across Jonah's mind, you know what? I've gone too far. I did it. I've gone too far. I am unsavable now. And as I was pondering this, thinking about this, this mentality I think is far more prevalent than most people in the church realize. I think it can be true for us in the church where we can be haunted by this feeling that I'm living a certain way. I just did something. I think that might just be too much. I think I've gone too far. I think the grace has run out. And I think that can happen amongst us in the church. I think it's even far more prevalent of people in our lives who are not believers. And I think we often have this assumption of people in our life who they don't want to go to church or they don't really want to be a Christian or they don't even really want to talk about it. And we go to this place where we think they're just being arrogant about themselves. They just must think that they are proud, they don't need a God, and, and, and so why would I ever kind of dabble with that? Why would I ever want to talk about that? And you know, at times that, that might be true. But I think there are many people who would never step foot in here, not because they're proud, but because they are so ashamed of themselves and think there could not possibly be grace for them. God would never accept me, the things that I've done, 
or I've said. And, and you know, if, if you talk to people and you, you're kind of in a place where you just love inviting people to church or wanting to have conversations, a lot of times it'll manifest itself in humor. I can't count the many times I've heard this. Tell me if you've heard this. Man, I, if I stepped in there, the building would collapse on my head. I don't know when that big star becoming a thing, but it is prevalent. And yet, behind every joke, isn't there always a little bit of truth behind it? Isn't there always a little bit of kind of true feelings in there? And it's a joke that masks the pain. And so something I'll even notice, and this is pure observation, not judgment at all. Don't take this somewhere where it doesn't need to go. But when somebody new comes, and we love having new people come, well, first of all, I'll get a question of, hey, am I allowed to come there? And, and like, I'll be so stunned by that question, I won't know what to say. I'll be like, yes, you can come. And there's a perception of, I don't know if they would let my, somebody like me in there. And, and that maybe we shouldn't assume that people know they can always come. Maybe they do need to be asked and told, you can come. We want you to come, regardless of what you believe, regardless of what you're coming in the door with. But I'll notice people who come for the first time, and if it's somebody who's maybe just new to the area, and they're very kind of rooted in church, and they're just looking for a new church, they'll just sit anywhere. They'll kind of come in, they're kind of comfortable, even though they're not very comfortable, like they just know what it's like to be in a new church and where i got to go. But if you have somebody who comes in, it's the first time that they're ever maybe walk into a church, ever, maybe for years, it's often that they'll come, and they'll sit just in the last couple of rows. And it's kind of this embodied way of saying, oh, I'll come, but I don't know if I belong here. I don't know if I'm going to be accepted here. So I'm coming, but I'm going to come just as far as I need to go. It's not always the case. I know people in the back row, you're like, oh, no. All right, so I'm not, it's not a judgment. It's just an observation that oftentimes it's an embodied way to say what's true in their mind and heart. I don't know if they'll accept me here. I don't know if this is good for me. I don't know if I'm good enough for this. And so I say that to say this. Maybe there are people in our lives who are not walking with the Lord and they need to hear that they are um, caught in sin and they need a Savior. That's, that's possible. But is it possible for us to consider that what they might need to hear even more than that is not that they're sinners, but rather that they too, even they, can experience God's love. Because you're never too far gone. And so if you are here this morning and you are drowning under that fear that I just don't think I'm savable anymore, this can't be true for me. I just want you to know God loves you. And I believe in timely grace. And you can too. All right, number three. Let's read verse seven. Third point of our five-paragraph essay. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Third way of basically saying the same thing. Um, and, and, you know, we just talked about what this might mean for somebody who does not know God. Uh, but when I began this series, I made the note that if Jonah can be applied to anyone, no matter, you know, it can apply to anyone. But it seems to be, it can especially speak to those who consider themselves Christians for a long time. If you consider yourself a seasoned Christian, you've been saved for a long time, you know the drill, you've done all the Bible studies, all the church services, you've served in every department in the church. 
that in this sense, Jonah might speak to you more than the person who's never walked in. Because Jonah was an experienced prophet. He's been used by God before, and he did well. The man has a track record before he began to run. And he says, when my life was fainting away, when I was drifting, I remembered the Lord. Every believer, no no matter how long you have been a believer, is prone to wander. It's always a threat looming over us where we can begin to drift for any number of reasons. And what we need almost every time is not to learn something new, not like, Pastor, I've been going to church forever. Give me something new, man. Make it worth it. Make it worth my time. Give me something new. That's oftentimes not what we need. But we need to be reminded of what we already know. And I think that is the primary value of our weekly gathering. That we don't come in and go, this is only going to be worth it if I learn something new. But rather, we need to be constantly reminded what we already know. It is why we're here. We gather to be reminded of the grace of God and to praise Him for it. And then we scatter throughout the week to live out Christ within us wherever we go. Like the primary place of being a Christian is not in this room. It's not even on Sunday. It's at home. It's in your workplace. This is merely the fuel station that's going to give you what you need to go where you need to go. We gather in order to scatter. And it's why every passage in our gathering, if rightly preached, ought to point us to the gospel. Because that's what we need to be reminded of every single week. That the gospel is not just the front door to the faith. It's not just good news to the lost of saving grace. It is that, but it's far more than that. It is the moment-by-moment good news of God's sustaining grace. The majority of people here, I know, believe in Jesus Christ. Praise God for that, His grace for that. And we need to be sustained, and we need to be strengthened, because we still sin. You know what's interesting, and and I, I feel this, i hear this talking to people a lot, it's kind of strange how Christians are far more aware of their own sin than non-Christians. And you can think, why is that? Like, I became a Christian. I actually feel more miserable than I did when I was a non-Christian. I was a non-Christian. I was happy, man. I was doing whatever I wanted. But now I'm a Christian, and I've been bought by Christ, and I'm living for Him, and I'm, I'm kind of miserable sometimes. And the reason is because the more we grow in the faith, the Spirit grows us sustains us, but also exposes. And the more we grow in the faith, that means the more we see of God. And the more we see of God, the more it gets exposed in us. It's just like if we were to open up all these shades and the sunlight just came streaming through, you'd see more dust in the room. That light didn't create the dust. It exposes what's already here. We just don't see it. In the same way, the Spirit, as we grow, tends to expose some more things. And so how can we be sustained through that? How can we be kept from caving in? And the answer is a constant reminder of the gospel. In verse 7 there, Jonah again spoke of the temple. He brings up the temple again where, where the sacrifice for mercy took place on that day of atonement. And we know today on this side of the cross, Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin. He is the image of the eternal God. He is the center of the memorable gospel that we need to remember day in and day out. 
Because when we behold Jesus' sacrifice, when we cling to his resurrection, when we believe in his finished work, that is what keeps us from drifting away. We are brought into his presence, and we remember. This is not just a message for those who are new. This is the message for those who are of old. The second most printed book in the world outside the Bible is a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. Raise your hand if you've read any version of The Pilgrim's Progress. Just raise it up high. Let's just get, you, you've seen the video. All right, a little less than I thought. You should read it. It's a great book. All right, probably 40% of people raised their hand. It's about this man named Christian, and he's on this journey, and it's, it comes up with different characters. And there's a man on this journey called Apollyon. Maybe I'm saying that wrong. And Apollyon is rightly accusing Christian, the main character, of all the bad things he does. And he's going, oh, you're a Christian. Oh, but you do this, and you do this, and you do this. And Christian's answer, this is amazing. He goes, all this is true, and much more that you failed to mention. Basically said, you're right, but I'm actually far worse than you think. And then he says this, But the prince whom I now serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Look to the cross. This is what gets us back on the path when we done messed up. Let's close it out. We saw the thesis. We saw the three points. Now the conclusion, verses 8 to 10. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The secret that Jonah gives us of what happens when what we ought to do when we mess up, the secret is this. Run toward God, not away from Him. Because when God's children run toward him, even in our mess, we, we sang about this morning, the rebel heart, come ye sinners, into your arms I will be embraced. When we run into his arms, we will find, even how messy we are, that he is merciful and he is gracious and the sacrifice of his son still covers us all. And the worst thing we can do when we mess up is to run and hide in shame. Because that will just perpetuate the sin and the shame and the cycle. And the best thing we can do is to humble ourselves, acknowledge our error, and trust that he will be faithful to do what he said he will do. And not only does this restore us, it grows us. It's like a stock chart, man. You had a bad week but you persevere through that. Now you're over the long term. You're, you're growing. And you're like, man, I keep messing up, though. I keep messing up. And he says, yes, just keep running back to me. It's like C.S. Lewis always said. Of all the C.S. Lewis, wow, Lewis quotes. Here, I'm so excited I can't even say it. Of, of, all, of all the quotes, this is my favorite. He says, isn't it funny how day by day nothing changes? But I look back and everything is different. And if there's not a quote that sums up the Christian life, it's that. Because where sin runs deep, his grace is more. And we, like Jonah, can renew our vows. We vow to not run from him, 
to not trust in idols over and above him because at the bottom of the ocean, the idols will be exposed to be worthless. They can never help us. But at the bottom of his ocean, his grace is still there. And with a voice of thanksgiving, we can say, salvation belongs to the Lord. If there's one phrase that's the heartbeat of Scripture, the heartbeat of Scripture, what makes it pump? It's that salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to any person. It doesn't belong to any race. It doesn't belong to any country. It doesn't belong to any king. It belongs to the Lord. And he provides and he reveals, and he pursues, and he delivers, and we accept this gift in faith. It's all grace. Let's pray.